People have been asking, almost since the first histories were written, does history repeat? I don't know what to say to that. When you ask the wrong questions, you get the wrong answers. I guess you get to answer that question any way you want. Given certain initial conditions, a particular country will be likely to undergo a revolution. And history shows us examples of countries with these conditions undergoing revolutions over and over again. So revolutions provide us one example of history repeating. Another person might argue that the Russian Revolution of 1917 was fundamentally different from any revolution before or after it. That's the nature of revolutions. They're all different, with their own particular unique issues, workings, and outcomes. So you could say that revolutions don't repeat because they're all fundamentally different from each other in one way or another. I don't care. Answer it any way you like. As I say, when you ask if history repeats, you're asking the wrong question. There are three questions you should ask about history. What does it tell us about how we got to where we are now? What insight does this give us regarding the possible choices available to us as we chart our generation's course through history? And what does history tell us about the likely outcomes as our generation weaves its particular path through history? You can't answer these questions unless, first, you know your history, and second, you understand how to analyze history correctly. This has been the purpose of this podcast, to review at least some of the history that's important for us to know in order for us to understand how we got to here, and to provide some of the tools necessary to help you understand how to analyze our historical path to here, and to help us make the choices this generation must make regarding climate change. With that in mind, let's look at some of the tools we've been using to analyze history and help us understand our path forward from here just a little better. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 45, How History Works. So today, we're taking a deeper dive into the mechanisms of historical change. If we can understand a bit better what makes history work the way it does, we can understand the factors in play in our own time and have a better understanding of the likely paths history will lead us in the next generation or so. History's a nonlinear system, so you can only understand general trends, nothing specific. And the further you go, the less accurate you can be, whether well, there's a nonlinear system like history. Yet, as meteorologists have learned more and more about systems and have gained more specific information about specific inputs into a given weather system, they've become considerably more accurate in their predictions of weather a week away. Even more, they're able to predict weather further and further into the future. Of course, the further out they go, the less accuracy they have but meteorologists are far better at predicting long-term weather than they were in the 1950s or 60s. Think of the predictions of a hurricane's path were shown when a hurricane approaches the east coast. A path of the hurricane is shown in what's known as a storm cone. 
that is, the path of the hurricane over the next couple of days is predicted with relative specificity. Over the next several days, and as much as a week later, the possible paths of the hurricane become ever wider. So it is with predicting the future course of history. Only such predictions are much more fraught with uncertainty, as hurricanes always seem to continue in a generally forward direction. But history is always capable of making sudden turns and about faces. Because nonlinear systems are impossible for us to predict with specificity, a meteorologist in June can't predict the weather for the first week of September with much accuracy. But meteorologists have become much more adept at predicting whether it'll be likely to be an unusually hot summer, whether there's likely to be more or less rainfall than normal this winter, or whether it's going to be an unusually strong hurricane season or not. I've tried not to get too technical in this podcast, but we're going to have to know this stuff if we're going to understand how we got to here and the likelihood of us getting ourselves past the coming climate crisis. So let's dig a little deeper. First, let's look at evolution. I've said our species has had far too few first-class minds to help us chart our course through history, and that if you enjoy geeking out on such matters as evolution or economics, it's more than worth reading some of the great tomes in these disciplines, just to see the workings of first-class minds like Darwin and Adam Smith. On the off chance you're not going to read Darwin's 500-page masterwork on the origin of species this week, let's review just a few of the highlights of this theory as they're relevant to our study of history. Specifically, let's look at Darwin's theory of descent with modification. Actually, Darwin is generally credited as the co-creator of the theory, along with Alfred Russell Wallace. There's lots of interesting information about how they both hit upon the theory at the same time. But Darwin wrote his amazing book on the origin of species, and Wallace didn't. So Darwin gets most of the press. At any rate, the first piece of the puzzle that's relevant to us is descent with modification. In biology, this means that from time to time, a member of this or that species will be born with different characteristics. But these modifications are random. Perhaps a finch is born with beautiful yellow tail feathers. But these feathers make the bird more visible to its predators, so they're maladaptive. This bird leaves children with bright tail feathers who are eaten more often. Consequently, they're killed more often than other finches and leave less offspring. This leads us to Darwin's big idea. Perhaps a finch that eats pulp from inside a prickly cactus will be born with a longer, thinner beak, giving that bird a better chance at getting the pulp inside cacti. Or perhaps a finch that eats hard seeds will be born with a thicker beak, allowing that finch to eat harder seeds, conferring a better chance of survival. These birds, who are better adapted to their environment, also have a better chance of leaving more progeny because of their superior adaptions to their environment. Hence, Darwin found cactus-eating finches with long, thin beaks and seed-eating finches with thick beaks on the Galapagos Islands. This is natural selection. Animals who are born with adaptations that give them a competitive advantage over other members of their species are likely to leave more progeny and, therefore, over time, outpopulate members of their species without the helpful adaptations. 
You can see this going on in history as well. Take the wheeled plow. This plow had a heavy iron plowshare that turned more soil and allowed medieval farmers to be more productive. One can trace the spread of the wheeled plow across Europe over several centuries during the medieval period as slowly, village by village, peasants realized it would provide them higher agricultural yields. The same can be said about numerous other advances in the Middle Ages, such as crop rotation, the horse collar that allowed horses to be used as draft animals, which allowed peasants to plow much more land. Then there was the harrow that smoothed out the uneven furrows left by a plow and made germination of their seeds much more successful. There was the hoe, which allowed peasants to weed far more acreage in a single day. All of these agricultural advances and more provided increasing agricultural yields and spread slowly, village by village, replacing the practices that were used before them. Until, by the late medieval period, European farms were far more productive per acre than they had been in the Dark Ages. This, in turn, permitted the growth of large, middle-class, medieval city populations that eventually allowed the Renaissance to flourish. Improvements in agricultural technology were invented purposely and selected consciously by villages as they saw the advantages to them, unlike the descent with modification and natural selection that occurs in nature. But the mechanism is essentially the same. An improvement comes along that provides advantages over previous methods of doing things and is gradually adopted by society as the preferred way of doing things. Call it cultural selection. There were many more innovations by untold farmers during the Middle Ages, but just like the finch we imagined earlier with the bright yellow tail feathers, if they didn't provide a significant advantage in agricultural productivity, they died out quickly and didn't spread. Our next tool for evaluating history is something we've discussed here and there throughout our podcast. We have to understand historical trends as systems. In doing so, we can gain some insight into the workings of history and how we got to here, and how our choices may affect where we are going. Remember how systems work. You can't understand a system by zooming in and looking at individual transactions in a system. Transaction by transaction. Systems can only be understood by zooming out and looking at how smaller trends affect larger trends within the system and, ultimately, lead to emergent events. Emergence is, you may recall, when all the myriad parts of a system come together to exhibit some property that the system's individual parts never had when looking at them individually. Perhaps the simplest example of this is musical harmony. Get people to sing individually, and their voices have their own unique, distinct sounds and qualities. But get several voices to sing together, and you have a completely different sound that comes together in what we recognize as harmony. So it is with historical movements. All of the agricultural achievements we've mentioned above combined and allowed greater numbers of people to live together in cities and not to have to till the ground to produce their own food. Cities began to thrive and grow, allowing large numbers of people to live together in communities that are not wanting for food or shelter. These communities came together, talking, socializing, singing, studying, reading, and writing, as people in large communities do. 
All this came together, and new ideas percolated. Eventually, these new ideas began to coalesce and come to the surface. Suddenly, Boccaccio wrote the Decameron, examining and glorifying the human condition. People read it and loved it, and began their own studies, analyses, and discussions of human nature, and a whole new culture, the Renaissance, was born. The same dynamic works in negative ways as well. A charismatic politician might become very active in an ultra-right political party. He or she might travel throughout the entire country, spreading his or her gospel of fear and hate toward outgroups. His or her charismatic speeches might attract many thousands of audience members throughout the country, sparking, literally, millions of individual conversations about this message of hatred towards Jews, blacks, immigrants, or other groups the politician identifies as social pariahs. These conversations could then spark a new zeitgeist among the far right, believing in the new politician with such charisma and inciting anger toward the chosen outgroup. The thing about emergence is that when it happens, it happens suddenly and typically manifests in an unexpected form. For example, the popular czar Alexander II was assassinated by socialists in March of 1881. Although the plot to assassinate him wasn't a Jewish plot, there was at least one person involved that was of Jewish descent. In a highly anti-Semitic era, it may possibly have been foreseen that there would be a local anti-Jewish backlash to that. But in 1881, Russia had moved into the era of mass communication. Newspapers and other forms of mass communication spread rumors, and what we would now call fake news spread across the country. Thus, what, at one point, would have likely been a localized anti-Jewish movement became a three-year movement of pogroms across Russia. No one had expected such extended and violent attacks against the Jews to come as a result of the anti-Jewish propaganda arising in the wake of the assassination of Tsar Alexander II. But that's what happens when there's a mass media and a large propaganda campaign against a national minority that suffers from significant popular prejudice. Exactly how it manifests is due to emergence and can't be predicted with certainty. You can often hear this referred to as the rule of unexpected consequences. History is replete with examples of emergence, instances of historical trends mushrooming into social events, or historical trends that nobody predicted. Invent the printing press, go through a cultural enlightenment, the social movement we've termed the second axis, create a literate and well-read middle class, put them in overseas colonies where they have a lot of self-governing responsibilities, give them a good communication network among themselves, let them largely govern themselves, transact business and trade, and communicate among themselves for about a hundred years, and what you think may be a minor dispute about a fairly small request to pay a stamp tax, can become an unbridgeable matter of principle about taxation without representation that leads to a revolutionary war a war that will lead to a free people declaring the first democratic government in modern times, which, in turn, would set off a chain reaction among other Western countries in which most industrialized or industrializing nations would become democracies themselves 
over the next hundred years. There's an emergence that no one dreamed of when the British Parliament decided to issue what they thought was a reasonable tax in order for the American colonists to help contribute to their own costs of defense. That's a major point about most instances of historical emergence. Most of the time, nobody sees it coming. Or, often, a few people see it coming, such as those few that predicted the Great Recession of 2008, but nobody listens to them. Why? Because everybody interprets history in terms of what's come before. Perhaps they're looking for history to repeat itself. But remember how history rolls. There's the outer wheel that continually rolls on to new territory. Then there's the inner wheel that keeps spinning around in place, rolling from dynasty rise to dynasty decline and back again. In the Western world, we've watched as the outer wheel has taken us from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance to the Second Axis to the Industrial Revolution to the American Revolution to the Gilded Age or America's Industrial Revolution to the Progressive Era, etc. Meanwhile, the inner wheel continues to spin. America was on the Empire Rise portion of its rotation for about 200 years. As we saw with China, the amount of time that it takes for the Empire Rise portion of the inner wheel's rotation can vary significantly. But 200 years is a fairly standard amount of time for the upward swing of the inner wheel's rotation. But you might possibly be one of those who believe that America is the wealthiest country the world has ever known, and that's just who we are, and that our economy will continue growing into the indefinite future, and that there are no warning signs, and that we need not be wary of impending decline. If so, stay tuned. So let's use these tools to analyze where we are now. I'll call this method of using the tools listed below the present historical analysis method of analyzing history. Step one in present historical analysis, that is, using history as a guide to help us determine where a country stands in its current historical moment, and what this tells us about likely paths that it may take from here, is to determine where it stands in the dynasty rise, dynasty decline rotation of the inner wheel. Once we've determined that, it's necessary to assess whether there's an emergence that's looming on the near horizon. It may be a dynasty in decline that's near the bottom of its trajectory and is ready for an emergence that will take the country back on an empire rising track, such as the U.S., after the Revolutionary War. Though I don't think anyone would have identified the colonies in 1775 as an empire in decline, independence did bring us a new nation and our founding fathers provided a whole new system of government. From there, our foremothers and fathers provided the elbow grease and hard work that led us to our own Industrial Revolution, what's popularly known as the Gilded Age, and so on. Or perhaps it's a country like Spain, after its discovery and conquest of the New World. It retrieved unbelievable riches in gold and silver from the Aztecs and Incas. It mined literally a mountain of silver from Cerro Rico in Bolivia, yet it defaulted on its national debt three times, even with all those riches. It couldn't seem to duplicate its military dominance in the old world, 
that it had attained in fighting Stone Age cultures in the New World, and it went into decline. It never reattained the dominance it had in Europe in its heyday following its conquests in South America. In evaluating this, remember the lessons we learned from China. An empire can rise for several generations, and it can decline for several generations as well. But we also saw empires that benefited from the good governance of several emperors, only to decline and be lost by the governance of a single bad emperor. We also saw empires that thrived and then declined, then began to thrive again when competent emperors once again brought good leadership back to government. So, although I'm using the metaphor of a wheel, it can move slowly or it can move very, very fast. Step two in present historical analysis. Remember the outer wheel. Where is the outer wheel headed? History doesn't repeat the same trends over and over again. Wherever a country stands on the dynasty on the rise versus dynasty on the decline spectrum, it is headed into new territory. It may be headed for minor change, or it may be headed for major change, but it's headed into new territory. The trick is to figure out what road or roads the country is most likely to take. Remember how systems work, and how sooner or later the course of historical events will lead to an emergence of some kind or another. The emergence may be negative, perhaps an economic recession, or it may be positive, perhaps a positive new political turn that takes the country in a constructive direction. The problem with people attempting to use history to help foresee a country's possible path is that people always seem to be looking backward. Such and such happened before. Is it likely to happen again? No, it's not likely to repeat. It's likely to go in a new direction. But careful analysis of historical and economic trends can give us clues as to likely paths the country may take. Remember that a social grouping as large as a country is going to follow the rules of a system. Again, I'm not going to get into the weeds and dig into specific things like dynamic systems theory. The basics will do for us. If you set up a system in which the default interaction is to defect, using the terminology of game theory, that is, individual actors within the system act selfishly, taking what benefits them most, from every transaction to the detriment of other actors in the system, the system will be headed in a downward trajectory. Ultimately, this will result in some very negative form of emergence. If the system adopts rules of cooperation, on the other hand, that is, if the default for individual actors within the system is to cooperate, acting in such a way as to enhance the overall health and well-being of other actors within the system, the system is likely destined for a very positive form of emergence. All right, so how do we tell where a particular country is headed? How close is the country to some significant episode of emergence that will change the course of a country's future, either positively or negatively? Well, is the country you're analyzing engaged in social turmoil? The more the answer is yes, the closer you are to some emergent episode. Look to the psychology of the factions within the country. Are they angry? 
Do they espouse primarily philosophies of self-interests over the good of the country as a whole? If the answer to all these questions is yes, expect to see a very negative and disruptive emergence on the horizon. On the other hand, is the social turmoil aimed at moving society in a positive direction, such as civil rights? Do the actors in the movements look forward to the future with hope and optimism? Do they espouse primarily philosophies that will enhance the best interests of the country at large, even at the expense of their own self-interest? If these answers are answered affirmatively, then expect a constructive emergence that will move the country in a positive direction. Can we predict the emergence episode with specificity? No. But the more you study your history, the more you'll see how mass movements affect societies, and the better you'll get at it. Step 3. Expect Black Swans In his 2007 book, The Black Swan, Nassim Nicholas Taleb argued that rare and unpredictable outlier events often have an outsized effect on the course of history. Taleb's book is very insightful, perhaps more insightful than it should be. In other words, American history is full of events such as Pearl Harbor that nobody foresaw, but I'm not sure that that should be the case. Everybody knew Japan was a bad actor on the world stage at that point. It was very imperialistic. It had conquered large swaths of Asia and brutally oppressed those under its so-called Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. Japan was an island with no significant resources of its own, requiring it to import virtually all the resources necessary for it to industrialize and to run its vast military. Then America slapped an oil embargo on Japan. Embargoes are notorious for not only not working, but also for leading to military escalation. Seriously? No one saw the possibility of military engagement against Japan after our embargo? They should have. There's no way Japan could have continued to fuel their economy with the embargo in place, and they had already demonstrated that military engagement was their preferred form of negotiation. That's the thing about black swans unforeseen events that change the course of history. Most of the time, they shouldn't be black swans. We know they're out there. We should expect them and should actively look for them. Under President Clinton, there was an episode in which our national security apparatus detected unusual amounts of chatter on the Internet, talking about something big that was going to happen. Clinton raised our national security alert to its highest level. An astute border agent caught a terrorist trying to bring explosives into the U.S. in order to blow up the Space Needle. The plan was thwarted. Before 9-11, there were massive amounts of chatter on the Internet, far more than with Clinton's challenge. Yet Bush Jr. didn't raise the national security levels as Clinton had, and 9-11 was the result. When you look for black swans, you find them. When you don't, they find you. Step 4. Evaluate your historical period for its likelihood of regression to the mean. Regression to the mean is a statistical concept that says if you're evaluating a set of variables and you see variables that are bunched at one extreme or another, future sample variables will be closer to the mean. Here I'm co-opting this statistical concept and applying it to present historical analysis. Historical trends 
have a tendency to skew ever more to the right or to the left. The problem for those in the country pushing the extreme historical movement is that these movements typically eventually go too far for those moderates in the middle that supported the swing of the political pendulum at the very beginning of the movement, and the country experiences a regression to the mean, or, as we've been noting, a swing of the political pendulum in the opposite direction. This political pendulum seems to take, on the average, about 30 to 40 years. So, step four. Is the country you're analyzing ready for a change in political direction? Step five. Is your historical period ready to become a more compassionate nation? Remember that the outer wheel of history turns slowly, but in an ever more compassionate direction. Not always, as sometimes it goes in reverse for a while, but in the long run, societies, as we've noted, become more and more compassionate. Where is the country you're evaluating? Again, we don't want to look at where it is now and project that into the future. Instead, what forces will be driving political change, and which, among competing forces, are likely to prevail? Step 6. Identify and evaluate your historical drivers. In order to make the determination that we talked about in Step 5, we need to understand the historical drivers that will be propelling the country you're evaluating into the next phase of its history. Don't forget the prime driver. There will be few, if any, historical analyses that you'll do that won't include this one. It's been our constant companion during our entire journey that we've taken from Adam and Eve until now. The tendency of humans to separate themselves into in-groups and out-groups, to vilify their out-groups, and to enter into some kind of conflict with them. So, who are the various groups in the country that you're analyzing, and what stories are they telling about each other? But make sure you never accept their analysis of each other. You need to see what they're saying in order to analyze them, but you need to understand that the stories they're telling about each other, how bad each other is, are simply stories driven by our primal drive to vilify outgroups. Don't buy into them, or you won't be able to perform your present historical analysis neutrally and accurately. What are the other historical drivers? What's the economy doing? And what's it likely to do? Is there a popular leader? Where is he or she likely to take the populace? Again, crucially, look at the psychology behind popular movements. People have been conditioned by the media, their leaders, and social media. Have people been conditioned to react emotionally? If so, then expect them to react with a conditioned response to their leader's prompt. This happened, for example, in the 1950s and 60s, during the Cold War. Americans were conditioned to understand that the USSR, or the Russians, as we typically referred to them then, were outgroups, and anything that smacked of communism or socialism was bad. No convincing was necessary. It was just bad. Something like our current Affordable Care Act could never have passed Congress. All that needed to be said that it was socialized medicine and Americans would have voted it down immediately because of their emotional connection of socialism to communism and communism to our great enemy, the USSR. 
Step 7. How will the media serve to spread or inhibit a given social movement? This has been important in evaluating historical movements since Martin Luther first used the printing press to spread his message among the faithful in Germany during the Reformation. Obviously, media has provided ever faster methods of spreading information or misinformation since then. And now, the internet and modern social media can spread social memes at lightning speed. This needs to be evaluated as well when considering where a social movement will go and how it will get there. So let's review. It's possible to use the tools we've been looking at at this podcast to understand the possible paths a country might take as it charts its course into the future. Two of the three greatest dangers in this are, one, the dangers of black swans, unforeseen events that will affect the future course of a country's history. Remember, when we don't look for black swans, they will find us. And two, the fact that history, by its nature, is nonlinear, an unbelievably complex system that, according to the rules of systems theory, can, and undoubtedly will, take sudden turns. The challenge for one using these tools is to foresee where these turns or emergences are likely to happen and what form they're likely to take. Clearly, when you're looking at the future path of a country's history, you're looking at broad trends not specific predictions. The third great danger is being a partisan in the country's struggles. By this, I don't mean you're a major player in the country's power politics. I mean anything down to having a strong preference for, say, the Democratic Party or the Republican agenda. It's just human nature that if we want something strongly enough, we tend to view events in the light most favorable to our side and least favorable to those whom we see as our outgroup. When this happens, we are no longer disinterested and are in great danger of giving some information too much weight, and other information not enough, that is, of seeing what we want to see, what to do. There's a trick. As you go through your analysis, keep asking yourself, my preference is for this to happen, or for that result? How much is this skewing my objectivity? If you're serious about this, you'll find that it will go a long way in neutralizing your personal prejudices and making you more objective in your analysis. At the very best, looking into the future is always seeing through a glass darkly. Yet if we use these tools, we can begin to anticipate where a country is likely to go or not, if not to determine its exact path, at least to hopefully gain some clarity as to what major paths the country is likely to take and what, statistically, are the chances of following a given path. Your read this week is The Black Swan, The Impact of the Highly Improbable, by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Okay, Taleb's book didn't change everything, but those books 
only come around once every generation or two. At least it did change modern historiography as it relates to evaluating unlikely, unexpected, or improbable events, and brought the term black swan into our everyday vocabulary. Well done, Nassim. His book is certainly worth the read. Enjoy. See you next week.